Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere, from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there, with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 198, The Beginning of the Big Three. Last time, in July of 1941, President Roosevelt sent Harry Hopkins again to see Churchill. FDR felt the time had come for the two leaders to meet face-to-face, to discuss and align their priorities and plans to defeat Nazi Germany. He had also given Hopkins to give to the Prime Minister a map detailing the United States Navy's new expanded area of patrolling, basically the vast majority of the Atlantic Ocean. Britain was now to focus on patrolling just around the British Isles, which the American hoped would take some of the pressure off the Royal Navy, which was stretched thin by now. However, the president stressed to Hopkins, to stress to the war-weary British leader, their coming conversation would not be about the U.S. getting into the war. The American people were not ready for that, though inevitable it may have felt, and the savvy politician knew he couldn't go any further than his constituents wanted to go themselves. It had been six months since Hopkins had last been to London and though the destruction Hopkins viewed on his way to see Churchill was staggeringly worse, there had been vast changes, for the better. For one, there were now many U.S. military observers in and around London, getting a sense of this modern war, the good and the bad of it. The latter was mostly the suffering of the people. But also, and Churchill couldn't wait to share this bit of news, The Royal Air Force had been using the delivered flying fortresses to bomb parts of Germany. And yet, the destruction had been cleaned up somewhat. After all, the Blitz had ended in May, with Hitler massing his troops, tanks, and aircraft for Barbarossa. Hence the mood of the military, but also of the people, was lighter than his first visit. It seemed that Great Britain had survived Hitler's attempt to either prepare for a German invasion or pound the English into submission. Those who could, in old blighty, still listened to the radio daily and were told that, as much as Russia was taking a beating, they, like those of this island, were still in the fight. Hopkins met with Churchill on July 17th. And though they talked of the various fronts, the politics in each country, the U.S. build-up, that it was far from perfect or balanced, with a view to arming the United States but also aiding Britain, they spoke as friends. Hopkins had warmed to the Prime Minister and his people and wanted to do everything he could to help in their time of need. Of course, Churchill would not be a proper leader of the bashed-about Britons if he did not try to get more from FDR's man, say, a commitment of some kind, about the U.S. entering the fray. But Hopkins dodged those questions with either silence or a knowing look. 
So Winston backed off and said that he was delighted with the map, though he understood that it did not mean the United States Navy would undertake convoy duty, but it would mean for the local British security, and he was eager to meet with Franklin. Hopkins also spent time with Avril Harriman, FDR's special envoy to Europe, and one of the main coordinators of Lendlease. Together, they visited sites where American supplies were coming in and couldn't help but notice the increased U.S. presence. FDR's right-hand man, for that's what Hopkins was, also met twice with the Soviet ambassador to Great Britain, Ivan Maisky. Maisky was a russified Pole who spent time in Western Europe, where he learned English and French. Joining the Bolshevik party in 1922, his language skills came in handy, and yet Stalin would not completely trust him because of his time in the West. In the late 1920s, he was a special envoy to Finland, but in 1932 was sent to Great Britain, again as a special envoy. He would stay there for 10 years. When Nazi Germany invaded Soviet Russia, Maisky's job was to normalize relations between Moscow and the West. And though Maisky told Stalin that Great Britain was sincere in helping the Russians if they could stay in the fight and had no desire to sign a separate peace with Hitler, his boss in Moscow could never quite bring himself to believe this message. Maisky also had the unenviable task of asking almost daily, if and when the British would open up a second front in northern France. Again, Hopkins, the American from the Midwest, did not care about this rare species, a polished and westernized Russian. He attempted to look into the Russians' soul to determine if Stalin and his country had what it took to hold off the Germans from a quick victory. After all, the Germans were soon at Smolensk, just 250 miles, or 402 kilometers, from Moscow. What's more, it looked as if Leningrad was about to be encircled, and much of the Ukraine had been lost. But Maisky knew his job. Staying calm before all these allegations of pending defeat, Stalin's man sat down and explained to Hopkins the importance of each area and what it meant for Russia if they lost it. But the good news was that much of the Russian industry had already been disassembled and taken across the Urals. That Stalin, and hence Russia, would fight on, no matter how many major cities fell to the Germans. Hence Stalin's request of a second front, to relieve the pressure. Maisky then asked if the United States would be opening a second front. But Hopkins had to reply, of which the Russian already knew, that this was impossible, as the United States was not even officially in the war. Now that Maisky had had his say, it was the Americans' turn. Hopkins wanted to know, without any salesmanship, just exactly what Russia needed to stay in the fight, in the short term, but also what was needed for a Soviet victory. Furthermore, what was the best way to quickly get those supplies to the ever-moving battlefront? But this was above Maisky's pay grade, and he said so, guessing the American respected blunt honesty. Only Stalin could answer such questions. It was then the Russian advised the American to travel to Moscow to meet the Soviet leader. This had not been on the itinerary. Still, 
Hopkins cabled his boss. I am wondering whether you think it importune and useful for me to go to Moscow. The question was worded thus because Hopkins, like so many, was sure that Russia would soon fall. But for now, at least, the British could enjoy a relative break. Yet if it could keep the Russians in the fight, it might be useful to give them some material aid. Of course, not too much, as Hopkins was thinking it may all well end up in German hands. As Hopkins said goodbye to Churchill, the Prime Minister wanted a message delivered to Stalin. Tell him, the Prime Minister said, that Britain has one ambition today, but one desire, to crush Hitler. Tell him that he can depend upon us. Hopkins promised to deliver the message, but did not know how it would be received. After all, no American official of note had ever met with the master of Soviet Russia. Soon after, Hopkins started on his 2,000-mile trip to Archangel from Scotland, and then another 600 miles south to the Russian capital. Yet before Hopkins left, he made a speech from Chequers, saying, The President is at one with your Prime Minister in his determination to break the ruthless power of that sinful psychopath in Berlin. You can imagine Hitler's reaction. That very night of Hopkins' departure, the Luftwaffe bombed London for two straight hours. The people of London had not had to endure such an event since May 10th. As Hopkins was en route, Churchill sought to smooth his way with the Bolshevik by writing to Stalin, I must tell you that he is the nearest representative of the president. A little while ago, when I asked him for a quarter of a million rifles, they came at once. You can trust him absolutely. He is your friend and our friend. He will help you plan for the future victory. Simply, the pro-British Hopkins wanted to help stop and then crush Hitler. Hopkins landed at the Moscow airport and was driven to the American embassy. Looking around, everything surprised him as Russia had been closed off to the American press and embassy staff. Getting further into the city, people were everywhere. They covered the streets, but they didn't seem to be going anywhere, just waiting, readying to flee if it became necessary. Hopkins' first night was spent with the American ambassador, Lawrence Steinhardt, at his mansion, known as Spazo House. Together, they went to the roof to look around. Hopkins noticed that the Germans had recently dropped a bomb where he had been standing earlier that day. When he got home, he told the president, the Germans took a hand in welcoming me to Moscow. The American representative might have been a down-to-earth man, but even his knees buckled as he walked up the stairs of the Kremlin. He kept asking himself, what am I doing here? Of course, Stalin knew nothing of the man coming to see him. That is, until he received a telegram from the American president, saying, treat Mr. Hopkins with the identical confidence you would feel if you were talking directly to me. So the dictator laid out his somewhat tattered red carpet, as had Churchill. Hopkins met twice with Stalin within the next three days. The dictator, then 62 years old, had a massive, though barely furnished, office. And it was as quiet 
as a tomb. For those who worked in the Kremlin, they seemed always to be speaking in whispers, as if not wanting to earn the attention of their leader. And the man's speech was like his dress, plain, straightforward, as if wasting anything, a word, or wearing any kind of ornament, was the equivalent of a crime. Speaking through an interpreter, Stalin talked for a while, and then got on to Hitler's betrayal of him. Not Soviet Russia, but Stalin the man. It was then his fists clenched and unclenched, his anger rising, until it got to the point where he had to sit there quietly for a minute in order to calm down. So, it came as no surprise that Hopkins picked up on the fact that Stalin's hatred for Hitler was personal, not diplomatic, not political. He hated the man in Berlin who tried to ruin everything Stalin had worked for, that his people had suffered and sacrificed for. It was then that Stalin made clear that he, that Russia, would fight the Nazi betrayer to the death. They will never get to Moscow this year, and if aid is forthcoming, we can fight for three or four years. Hopkins wondered if Stalin really believed that Soviet Russia could hold out for the rest of the year, much less into the future. Or was he just telling the American that to get material aid? But Hopkins decided that the man's certainty was from deep within. Of course, that might have come from the fact that the Russian leader was willing to throw in hundreds of thousands of barely trained, inadequately supplied or led men. But either way, the end result would be the same. That the German forces just beyond the outskirts of the capital had gone as far as they were going to go. As the American and Russian leader were chain smokers, Hopkins liked the strong Russian tobacco, Stalin, the unfiltered American brands given to him by the American embassy, they smoked through their conversation. That saw Hopkins attempting to convince Stalin that the president was resolute in defeating Hitler. Stalin nodded and replied, Therefore, our views coincide. Now that that was out of the way, Hopkins asked what Russia needed for now. Stalin, equally no-nonsense, replied, Light anti-aircraft guns, aluminum to build planes, machine guns, and rifles. Hopkins then asked, Where do you want these things delivered? Stalin shot back, at Vladivostok, in the Far East, out of the Germans' reach, and Japan would most likely not interfere, since their agreement after the Battle of Nomahan in mid to late 1939, near the outer Mongolian-Manchurian border, that kept Japanese forces out of Siberia and the surrounding area. Here were two like-minded men with similar styles of work. When they met again, Hopkins posed a question that tested the limits of Stalin's trust for any man. The American wanted to understand the complete picture of the military situation along the various fronts and the status of the Red Army weapons and factory capacity. Stalin started with the most challenging aspect of the Germans' invasion, the lack of roads over the Russian steppes. He told Hopkins, Moving mechanized forces through Russia was very different than moving them over the boulevards of Belgium and France. 
and that Russian factories were producing impressive amounts of war goods. Hopkins had seen for himself the Volga River, clouded with barges, carrying those recently produced weapons to the fronts at Moscow and just to the north of it. Stalin also mentioned that while, yes, the Nazis were advancing, each mile or kilometer put them further away from their supply bases and opened them up to counterattacks on their flanks. As we have already seen, Stalin sometimes inexpertly sent thousands of his troops to attack those very flanks. The Soviet leader was also organizing partisan attacks in the Germans' rear. But the one thing Stalin was most certain of was the Russian weather. When the fall rains came, the vaunted German panzers would be bogged down. When the snows came, the Germans would still be stuck, but also freezing. It was then that Stalin wanted to launch much larger counterattacks. But by then, he would need supplies, mostly materials to keep his factories going. If the United States wanted to truly help, it would give Stalin what he needed to keep his armies supplied and thus viable during the coming Russian winter. Hopkins replied to this rather lengthy speech, Stalin wasn't known for his chit-chat, that the president would extend all possible aid to the Soviet Union at the earliest possible time. This brought a rare smile from Stalin. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me, switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't wanna do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. Hopkins made it back to Scapa Flow on August 2nd. There, aboard the HMS Prince of Wales, the Admiralty's flagship, Churchill was waiting. Though being in dry dock for two months, the King George V-class battleship still showed signs from its battle with the Bismarck. Now that the American had returned, it was time for the Prince of Wales, with Churchill and Hopkins aboard, surrounded by numerous escort destroyers, to head for the Atlantic. When word of Hopkins' trip to Russia and conversation with Stalin reached the United States, its people were even more confused. Hadn't Stalin signed a treaty with Hitler? Didn't the USSR attack Finland and take territory from her? So why, now, did Hitler launch an attack to the east? Did that mean the war for Europe was over? That the Atlantic would be more safe? And what about the British? Did they still need our help? Was the United States still on a course to enter into the fray? Of course, the vast majority of Americans still thought ill of Hitler and wanted his government brought down. But this latest development did not bring their collective mindset any closer to thinking that the U.S. was in danger. This still seemed to be Europe's problem. Hello everyone, Ray here. You and I know the importance of exploring history from different perspectives. That's why you're listening to this, and that's why I enjoy watching The Great Courses Plus. After all, 
I'm learning from award-winning experts who are so knowledgeable and passionate. I love exploring different time periods, different parts of the world. The Great Courses Plus has over 8,000 engaging video lectures on so many topics. And right now, as one of my listeners, get unlimited access to watch anything that interests you free for an entire month. Hopefully, you've already signed up. But if you haven't, I want you to try a course I've been watching. Masters of War, History's Greatest Strategic Thinkers. This course has everything. Why Strategy Matters, Thucydides on Strategy, as it covers the Peloponnesian War, the leadership styles of the Athenians and Spartans. It has Sun Tzu, Machiavelli, Napoleon, Clausewitz, Alfred Thayer Mahon, who inspired Teddy and Franklin Roosevelt. The rise of air power and how that changed the very basics of naval warfare. And then it concludes with the nuclear age, its ramifications, the Chinese Civil War that saw the rise and victory of the communists, counterinsurgency, terrorism, and counterterrorism. By the time you're done, the issues you see in the news today will make that much more sense. And it's all free. You can stream this and any other courses from The Great Courses Plus from your smartphone, tablet, laptop, or TV, or download the videos and watch them offline like I do. I know you'll love The Great Courses Plus as much as I do, so start your free trial today by going to my special URL to sign up, and you'll get unlimited access to thousands of fascinating lectures. Get started today. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash world war. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash world war. But there was still Japan and the threat it posed. But not to the average American. Japan was increasingly a riddle for the average man on the street. As for FDR, he, of course, knew more, so was more concerned. Hopkins had heard from several Russians that with Germany's latest attack, Japan might reconsider its options to either go after the supposed weakened USSR or head south against western-held territory and make real their vision of Asia for Asians. Also that Stalin still had hundreds of thousands of troops along the southern Siberian border should Japan forget the sound beating General Zhukov had given them in 1939. But in trying to discern Japanese intentions, those in Washington were made dizzy by the back and forth of the Empire's messages. One day, the rumors suggested that an attack was imminent, but no one knew where or in what direction. The next day, Tokyo would inform the Americans that they were keen to work out a diplomatic solution. The information coming in from MAGIC, the United States Decryption Service, also called the Research Bureau, offered few helpful details. MAGIC combined the Army and Navy's intelligence-gathering efforts, all under one roof, to simplify and improve the process. It consisted of the Americans' first ability to decipher Japanese codes from a stolen codebook the Japanese had used during World War I, called RED, as the messages were kept in RED folders. Magic was also made up of blue, a more complex code created by the Japanese in 1930, but which the Americans had broken within two years. 
These messages covered most of the Japanese military signals, command to fleet, ship to ship, and land-based communications. But when Germany invaded Poland in 1939, Berlin sent technicians to Tokyo to upgrade their communications abilities. Basically, a modified Enigma machine would be used so the two powers could safely talk. The people of Magic went to work right away, confident that this system as well would soon be broken. Labeled purple, the combination of red and blue, the Americans, which by now included civilian specialists, could not break the code. But then they figured out that purple was not a straightforward substitution code like red or blue, but was a machine-generated code, like the Enigma cipher. The decoding would eventually be worked through, but it would take so long the information was by then practically useless. Then it dawned on the Americans to reverse-engineer the machine, which worked in late 1939. They were able to use their version of the German-Japanese device by replicating some of its settings. The actual decoding came later. However, it turned out that purple was only being used by the Japanese Foreign Office, not the military. They were using a system called JN-25. And as the Japanese Foreign Office did not know of, or were not told of, the coming attack at Pearl Harbor, the Americans were not able to grasp concrete proof of what was about to unfold. Of course, it would have helped Washington immensely had Tokyo told Berlin of the coming attack at Pearl. But as Hitler had not told the military, which practically ran Japan, or Mussolini for that matter, of his attack on Soviet Russia, there was nothing of it in the captured messages. Still, going on nothing but his instinct, Hitler told his generals in August, two months into Barbarossa, that he was certain Japan would pounce on the collapsing Soviet Russia and attack in the east, that Japan will carry out an attack on Vladivostok as soon as forces had been assembled. But as tension mounted in Europe with Hitler's attack on Russia and the possibilities that created, the last thing FDR needed was a separate war in Asia with Japan. Not that the president didn't think war wouldn't come. Japan had already proven itself an expansionist nation. But if that war could be delayed for, say, four years, then Germany could be dealt with and the U.S. possessions in Asia could be strengthened. His specific plan was to increase the embargo on certain vital products. The addition of new bombers just coming online to be stationed at Pearl Harbor and the Philippines. To increase the presence of U.S. Marines in various garrisons and the augmentation of naval air patrols throughout the Pacific, specifically at Wake and Midway Islands. And really, as the U.S. President saw it, all he had to do was check the more extreme elements of the Japanese military. If they could be held back by cutting U.S. oil and aviation fuel, the majority of which came from the United States, then Japan's military leaders, though strongly anti-Western, would get the message that any attack on U.S. territory would see an end to these vital resources. However, 
if U.S. oil was cut, Japan had already stocked up one or two years' worth, which should give them enough time to take the oil-rich Dutch possessions. It would be a gamble, but anything was better than being humiliated by the arrogant Americans. Which is why FDR's threat, even in diplomatic terms, had the opposite intended effect. If there was to be war, then to hesitate was to give the advantage to the Western power. No, it was better to strike now, before such resources were cut, and then to build a protective wall around the main islands by securing China, or at least major parts of it, Indochina, the Philippines, and the islands to the south, as far as Australia. By then, Japan would have its own sources of oil, tin, rubber, and other resources that the home islands lacked. And yet, there was in Washington, just as there were among the Japanese military leaders, those who wanted to bring the contest on now. Cut U.S. oil now. All of it. But the president responded with, an act such as this might tip the delicate scales and cause Japan to decide to attack Russia or to attack the Dutch East Indies. Neither response helped the American situation in Asia. Again, FDR knew, through the magic intercepts, that a real drag-down and knockout fight was currently taking place in Tokyo as to what their next move should be. Why give them something to make the decision easier? Their inaction only served American interests. Besides, as FDR told Harold Ix, the Secretary of the Interior, I simply have not got enough Navy to go around, and every little episode in the Pacific means fewer ships in the Atlantic, which is where America's focus was at the moment. But on July 2nd, 1941, the decision as to what to do about Japan was taken out of FDR's hands. The Japanese imperial leadership met before Emperor Hirohito, who was sitting at the head of a black table, but behind a ceremonial gold Meiji screen, in the first eastern hall of the Meiji Palace. These kinds of meetings were rare, as the emperor had no real power. But the decision the government and military had just made had to be discussed in his presence, to unite the Japanese people and heaven's representative, in this most basic of explanations. Of course, the larger question was already decided, but the process had to be gone through, and this gave the attendees a chance to further develop their thinking. As the emperor was above all such things, and therefore did not speak, he was represented by the head of the Privy Council, Hara Yoshimichi, his advisor. The meeting started, and the question before the body, though it had already been decided, was, in which direction should Japan strike next? Those who wanted to move north against Siberia, and therefore Russia, were deterred by that country's respectable, continued resistance to the German invasion. Thus, the only other option was to move south, and the first victim would be French Indochina as the Vichy government back in Europe had no chance of defending their Asian territory. 
In fact, many around the table did not believe that force would be needed at all. Still, the niceties had to be observed. Japan would tell the world that Indochina was being occupied to protect it from any possible aggression from the British in Malaysia. Of course, the time would come when such excuses were not needed. But for now, the idea of Asia for Asians had to be maintained. Someone asked about the possible responses of either Great Britain or the United States, but the response given, the only response possible, considering the audience, was, the empire shall not flinch. Not exactly a detailed plan for deflecting the Western industrial powerhouse across the Pacific. Now, the Japanese already occupied Hanoi and Saigon. The Vichy government of France had ceded control of these two major areas back in September of 1940. And with this latest decision, the rest of the territory would also be taken over. But again, the face, or dignity, of the Vichy government had to be maintained. So, on July 29th, Vichy and Tokyo signed the Protocol Concerning Joint Defense and Joint Military Cooperation. It had various limits of Japanese troop strength and airfields that could be taken over, but the Japanese would quickly ignore all of this. With the rest of French Indochina now under their control, the Japanese military were in a solid position to not only stop shipments to China over the Burma Road, but now nearby British and Dutch territories were threatened. Once again, FDR reached into his limited toolbox of diplomatic responses. He froze all Japanese U.S. bank holdings and stopped all trade in most American raw materials and finished goods. But to give himself some leverage for future action, he did not cut the sale of aviation-grade petroleum. Again, the president was trying to get Tokyo's attention, but at the same time letting them know it could always get worse. But of those that disagreed with the president's half-hearted gesture, they weren't looking at the full picture. Dean Acheson, the assistant secretary of state, on his own authority, cut all aviation fuel shipments to Japan. By this time, the president was already out of town, on his way to Newfoundland, to meet with Churchill. By the time FDR got back, he decided that reversing the sanctions, once he found out what Atchison had done, would look like weakness. It must be said that Atchison believed he was simply trying to knock some sense into the Japanese, but his actions were read in a completely opposite way by those in Tokyo. One Japanese officer wrote that this latest move by the United States felt like a fish in a pond from which the water was gradually being drained away. In other words, what did they have to lose by resisting? But it would be Ambassador to Japan Joseph Grew who would most accurately describe the situation in his diary. The vicious circle of reprisals and counter-reprisals is on. Unless radical surprises occur in the world, it is difficult to see how the momentum of this downgrade movement in our relations can be arrested, nor how far it will go. The obvious conclusion is eventual war. 
As such, the ambassador knew that his country would face a war unlike anything they had experienced before. Another diary entry read, The Japanese will not crack. They will not crack morally or psychologically or economically, even when eventual defeat stares them in the face. They will pull in their belts another notch and fight on to the bitter end. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are in your neighborhood, ready to help personalize your insurance. And you can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. Visit statefarm.com today to get a great rate without sacrificing great service. That's statefarm.com. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. Um, So I'm six days away from my vacation to Australia with the family. Um, So obviously there will be a gap because I'll be too busy bouncing around the cities of Aussie uh, to get anything done. Uh, I think we've done enough for now showing the Americans kind of their response to to, uh, Operation Barbarossa and what what, uh, FDR was dealing with. So here's the plan for when I get back. On one level... We're going to stop this with the Pacific. We're going to go back to 1937, start the Second Sino-Japanese War, everything that Japan's doing in China, uh, and his plans for what it's going to do after that. Obviously, they decide to go south and attack Western um, uh, territory in Asia, which, of course, leads to Pearl Harbor. We're going to get all to the Japanese planning, everything that the Americans didn't know, the, the whole kit and caboodle of that, then build up to Pearl Harbor and go on for there. When we get to Pearl Harbor, and just after that, I will then pick up with the story in Russia, which I think we left off in February of 1942. So then those two will be roughly at the same point, and then we can kind of go back and forth and balance that. Obviously, and the la- and the third thing I'll be doing is continuing on with the Stalin bio. I'm, I'm getting close to that. I'm going to be on the plane for 22 freaking hours there, and then 22 freaking hours back. And the plan is to knock out a lot of the Stalin bio, get a lot of it written. So when I get back, hopefully I can put out several episodes and get that going so we can get to a stopping point. And then it will just be the Asian theater, um, the European theater, and whatever bios I want to do, whether it's Churchill or some of the other people. Obviously, of Japan, I need to cover a lot of them. Um, as far as doing this podcast full-time... I am still on the ropes about that. I'm still trying to gather information. We're trying to check out insurance and all that good stuff, all the basics I got to cover. It's looking pretty good. I'm just not quite there yet, Um, but I'll let you know more as I know, as uh, as I figure out what I'm doing. But I would be just so excited to do that and and cover so much. So anyway, that's still uh, in limbo, but I'll let you know if anything changes on that. And... um, I will see you when I get back from uh, Sydney, Auckland, Melbourne, Brisbane, Cairn, Con, Can. I don't know how to say that. And we're going to st- obviously we're going to step by New Zealand because hey, why not? It's it's there. So we're going to go jump around uh, uh, Asia a little, not Asia, but uh, I guess South Asia for a while. Check things out and then come on back and and just check things out on Facebook. Hopefully, I can do a lot of pictures on Facebook for the World War II site. I plan on going to their uh, memorials and their museums and things like that and see what I can find. And I'll be posting all that on the um, 
on Facebook, and if I can get enough pictures of one particular place, maybe I can do an episode on it, a standalone episode on on it, like I did for the D-Day Memorial in Bedford County here in Virginia. So, um, thanks for everybody for listening. Thank you for your support. Um, I will see you as soon as I get off the plane in Dulles in mid-July. Take care, everyone. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can say big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.